Welcome to Who the Fuck Are I Tit Monkeys, the podcast where we chat to interesting people about their favourite songs from the titular lads from High Green as well as much more. This week I was joined by Kieran from Liverpudley and indie rockers Circle Waves. He hopped on the podcast to share a chat about his connection to the band at large, from seeing them live as a teenager all the way back in 2006 on the NME tour at Brixton Academy, how that experience galvanised him to get on stage, and how the band's albums continue to influence and inspire him today. We go in-depth on lyrics, drum sounds, and all the little bits of ear candy that Art and Monkey sprinkle their records with. We moved on to discussing Circwave's own career, examining their growth across four records, as well as his attitudes towards songwriting and music in general. We look at the ups and downs of being a member of a modern indie band, as well as how to stay healthy when coping with such. But before all of that, he reveals his favourite track from the group's sixth album discography. Here's me and Kieran from Circwave's, talking all things Art and Monkey's. Do I have to say this is my favourite Arctic Monkeys song, or can I just say it? I think it's a, a really good one? I think it's a really good one, yeah. doesn't necessarily need to be the favourite one. Yeah, because I do switch between... I, so this, so my choice, which you asked me to choose one, like so is Cornerstone. After the first... Re- obviously, the first record was the thing that sort of made everyone obsessed, and then the second rep- record was the one that sort of cemented my, like, okay, I'm, I'm all in. I'm all in forever now. And then when the third record came out, it took a bit of like, it took a bit of time to win me over. And, and Cornerstone was the song that really like kept me obsessed with them and just kind of made me realize how, I mean, I already knew he was an incredible lyricist and songwriter, but this sort of took his lyrics to a level which just connected with me in, in a way that maybe other stuff hadn't necessarily. I mean, I think with this one as well, it's the depth of it. Like, I mean, I was kind of looking into it today a little bit before we started this podcast, and the amount of articles and stuff that are trying to kind of pick this thing apart and unpack it a bit. And just, I mean, down to like, you know, he obviously chooses the names of the pubs and that kind of continuing metaphor he has of like pirates. Like, I'm trying to think, I think the three of them are, it's like the Rusty Hook, Battleship, Pirate's Beak, and this idea of her being this lost treasure. To go into that much detail with every specific piece of the lyrics in the song. See, well, see, I didn't even... That didn't even cross my mind. I'd ne- I'd never thought about that until today when I started looking into it, and I was like, "This is just you know what it might incredible. be. One, it might be one of those things as well where if you were to ask him, he'd be like, "No, there's just I just know loads <laughs> of pubs that are called that." I, I imagine because I, I think I was looking at the lyrics before just to try and remember them properly. People do love to unpick every single thing he says, which I don't tend to read those things because ultimately, like, it's just sort of like music nerds sort of obsessing over what might not even be what he was trying to get across. And as a songwriter, I know that sometimes you write a verse and it might not even make full sense to you. So like, you often don't know the full meaning behind it. I mean, maybe he probably does because he's a bit of a genius, but at least all the songwriters I know, they'll often write a verse and then they'll go, not really know what it means, like till five, ten years later. It's a bit of like a, you know, a train of thought, a trail of thought, a train of thought. And then you sort of figure it out afterwards. At least that's how I sort of do it. I guess, is there an element too of writing for the melody sometimes and writing something that kind of just fits into that pocket? Yeah, definitely. I think um, there's a guy who is it, is it, I can't remember his name, the guy from Semisonic who always talks about syllables and, and how important like a syllable sings out. And it's the same with like Noel Gallagher, like So Sally Can Wait, like that just sings amazing. But it doesn't mean anything. Like it means, it, like it's no one. Ha- it's not like a universal connection to a woman called Sally. It's just something that everyone can sing really well. And sometimes that that's what matters 
the most. But with this song, I suppose it is it's very much a, a lyric heavy tune, narrative driven track. Narrative yeah. driven. What did I write down as my the um, and I elongated my lift home. I let her go the long way round. I smelt your scent on the seatbelt and kept my shortcuts to myself. And it's just like it's just ridiculous. Like you can't even imagine how you'd like it's better than most poetry that I've ever read. And it just it's more it seems more poetic than definitely like the early records. And yet that humor's still there too. Like there's something kind of funny about that verse that you just read out also that kinda of ties into the you know, something that could have gone on the first record too. Yeah. I mean I wouldn't have the bottle to say like I smell your scent on the seat <laughs> like I could smell you on the seatbelt. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think it's just so vivid and so, like, you know, you can imagine him sitting there and that's what he's very, very good at. What else was the other thing I wrote? Oh, yeah, I can't remember when this record came out, but I was very... 2009. 2009. I, um, I don't know how old I was in 2009. Probably not as young as I wish. Um, <laughs> the, I, the set, when he says, uh, and she wrote it out in set, I remember, like trying to find out what Letraset meant for ages. And that was how much of a dweeb I was for the Arctic Monkeys and my lack of English knowledge. You know, he's, he's, like, he's like an indie writer who makes like young people try and get better at speaking, which is one of the things I'm not very good at. So I love that. You saw them, I think you'd noted this down previously as your favourite gig. You saw them back in 2006, right, on the anime tour. I did, yeah, that was one of my favourite gigs. That was such a massive impression on me because I remember... I think the enemy tour that year was We Are Scientists. Oh, Mystery Jets, We Are Scientists, Arctic Monkeys, Maximo Park. And I remember, I mean, a cracking lineup. such a good lineup. And I remember We Are Scientists playing a tune called Cash Cow, which they brought Alex Turner out for. And he was in like double denim with his collar up. And he just like smashed it. And he was absolutely amazing. And he like, it, like it immediately became like my icon. Uh, and made me just want to play. I mean, I especially wanted to play that tour, the Enemy tour, which we eventually did get to do. Yeah, I was going to say, I had a feeling you did that, like maybe 10 years on from that or something. A little yeah, bit less. I can't, I don't know what year, 2014 maybe, 2013, I can't remember. 2015, I don't know. But yeah, that was like a real moment of me going like, I have to be up there and I have to find a way to, to do what they're all doing. And the thing about, like, you get people who are, like, quite iconic. There's lots of artists now who look cool and wear cool clothes and, like, you kind of, like, wish you were them, but they don't really have the songs to back it up necessarily. And I think the Arctic Monkeys and Alex Turner just had, like, that thing where everyone wants, all the young people wanted to be them, but they also had these massive songs which were just, like, you know, incredibly written. I think it's because the songs came first. Like, although we're sitting there, you know, that they look cool, you know, around... I mean, well, that's 2006, I guess. But if you look at the kind of pre-album shots and stuff on that first record, <laughs> yeah. they're kind of just kids kicking about in their jeans. Like, there's no effort to kind of be something that they're not. It's only by the time you kind of get to AM and whatever, and he's got the slip back kind of 50s yeah. hair and the leather jackets and all that stuff that kind of turns him into that rock star. Maybe it's like the the perception of, of cool. Like, he was very, he was very, he looked very calm and he had his collar up and he was playing these tunes that were better than everyone else's tunes like the i think they were third on the on the lineup of that and they just blew everyone away like the songs were just better than everyone else's so maybe i was just uh, thinking he was cool because his songs were cool i don't know that's mental being them third on that lineup i know i think well that must have been pre-debut album i I guess yeah it must have been yeah i don't know exactly 
where they were in the release schedule. But we everyone had all the demos and, you know, like Choo Choo and um, trying to remember all those old... The, was it Beneath the Boardwalk or something it was called, that kind of tape? Yeah, but there was, so ma- there was so many. I remember we used to pass them like round to each other on CDs um, back in the day. And like, I think Mike Crossy did all those demos because he used to do it in Motor Museum, which was down on Lark Lane by not, not far away from where I live. They had this weird Liverpool connection. And, and then I think... Mike Crossy, for some reason, didn't end up doing the first record. Then it, it ended up being Jim Abyss. But uh, I love those first demos. I, I sort of felt like the first record lost a little bit of that vibrancy that they had. Do you think that's just partially too because you forged a connection to them initially based on the kind of roughness of that sound? Yeah, probably. I mean, there's a thing in the industry called demoitis where you'll you'll like make a demo and of a, of set, like a good tune and you'll send it around to your management your A&R and the band and everyone will be like yeah this is a great song great song we love it and then you go and record it with a you know a top top rated producer costs seven grand and everyone's like it's just it's not as good as a demo and that happens constantly when that when that happens who do you show it to to kind of validate it then or kind of get a new perspective on it if you can't then show it to your management because they've already got that kind of demo it's kicking about that's a good yeah that's a good point I don't know. Often, yeah, you'll try. You'll probably show someone both versions. Someone who's not not seen either of them and, and see what they think. I know we, we've we in our pa- you know when we were signed to a major record label and there's loads of money like money floating about. We'd record like different versions with different big producers and and see which one was the best and like just like tiny things that you wouldn't think make. I think we recorded our song Fossils like five times. Probably cost a fortune. I don't know how much money it costs, but just to get it to this essentially lo-fi indie sort of th- thing, we we put a lot of effort into that and loads of producers and stuff. And it's funny what it takes. To what when you hear that final article, you don't really know how many versions of that song have happened before it. You know what I mean? Well, that's one of the things that we haven't really touched upon with Cornerstone is the fact that although you know it's got that intimacy and that narrative at the heart of it, the production of that song. It's quite cinematic and you have all these little bits of ear candy and these little things going on in the background. I mean, I was intrigued, particularly with your last two records. Was the production an influence on them at all? Do you find yourself going back to these albums that you love when you're trying to push your sound forward? Yeah, oh, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, I'm awful for like just ripping off other bands' production and, and songs. <laughs> um, I mean, particularly those... I think with that third Arctic Monkeys record, they pushed the production into a more organic and analogy kind of feel which definitely then moved on to, you can even hear like the sort of drum sound in Humbug starts to evolve into what eventually AM sounds like, I suppose. Because the first two records are quite tight and really, I mean, this is super nerdy, but like really high-tuned snare drums. and Second in particular. Yeah. And then so it, it became chunkier and I guess I think it was Josh Harm involved in the third one. Uh, and I, I mean, it's definitely the AM drum sound is something that I've tried to reproduce tons of times on our record. I think on our second record and third record and fourth record, I was like, let's get like the Are You Mine drum sound is so ridiculous, which I, I've tried to emulate that a lot. It's interesting too, because both Humbug and Suck It Into, you know, they often get overlooked maybe sometimes. And yet we come back to them in conversations like this as these important records where we can see the se- uh, the seeds being sowed and kind of see how important they are in the trajectory of AM at large and where they go from there. I mean, for you, what do you feel like is your most important record in terms of the trajectory of the band and kind of moving the sound forward in hindsight? I think they've all done, they've all done things that have, have changed 
the way I think about how we should move forward. I mean, this, I feel like the second record, we went quite heavy compared to the first record. It's a lot more, it's a bit darker and a bit more, a bit more rock and roll and more Foo Fightersy or something. Um, and I, I kind of think I'd, I went too far on that in some ways. Um, and wished I, and like in hindsight, wished I hadn't gone as heavy. So then on the third record, I went, right, I don't want to do that. So I pulled it back a bit, but then also went super like expansive on big drums and like, uh, more strings and then added piano and stuff. And then on the fourth record, I went, I think I went too far on the last record. I did too many, too much piano and too many strings. So then reduced it again. So the fourth record was like kind of what the first record was, but with like lessons learned in maybe sort of, uh, what's the word when you don't use as much, um, like constricting ourselves a bit more. Restraint. Really? Yeah. Like restraining what we use. Like I know there is, when you go into a studio, there's like pianos and the strings and there's a million synths, but maybe it's about like what is best for the song. Um, with the fourth record, we definitely tried to restrain ourselves from using absolutely everything in the studio. Um, and sort of using what we've learned and the mistakes that we made, or at least things that I look back at and go, I wish I hadn't done that. Which I think sometimes people have the this idea that maybe when you put a record out, it's you know to you it's perfect. But you know, the, most records I think people put out and within six months, there's songs on there that they're like, oh, I'm not sure about that one now, or I don't like the production on that one. But that's just the nature of putting a lot of records out. I'd rather put more records out and have mistakes than just put one out every five years. Do you also maybe need that to propel you on to doing the next thing? Like, is there something in that maybe being unsatisfied with a particular song in an album that kind of pushes you to keep writing and going forward? Yeah, I think so. I'm, I'm definitely like a very unsatisfied person in, in, talk, in t- musical terms. I always, you know, when we play a big venue, like I want the next venue. I think we got number four on the charts on our last record. I was like, the next record I want to get three, two or one. Any of those would work for me. I, I always think like if you're a content if you're a content musician, then you're not going to write good music. Like it, you need to be ultimately like there has to be a driving force behind every album to make it good. Hence why like older rich people aren't very good at writing songs. I don't think, you know, Paul McCartney or Noel Gallagher haven't written a good song in a long time. And that's because they're just they're too, too satisfied or, or something. You know, the, they need that drive of being young and hungry and, and, not as well off. I mean, I think it's there in the title of Sad Happy, you know, that emotional kind of tension at the heart of it. Yeah. Still trying to, I mean, we, we all live in this mad time and I mean, this was, I wrote it all pre-pandemic. Um, so, it, well, you know, I was completely oblivious to what was about to happen. Things were still crazy though. Yeah. I mean, life was still fucking mad <laughs> on it. It's it's this weird thing of like when you grow, grow older, you almost think like in your thirties, you'll have it all together. And there's a bit, it's a bit of a shock when that, doesn't come true. I was speaking to my friends about this the other day. There's almost like a second coming of age when you go past your thirties and you're like, it's this realization that life isn't necessarily exactly how you as expected it to be. Or at least even when it's going well, you thought maybe you'd feel happier or something. Is that what you were articulating on Lemonade? Let me try and remember what Lemonade's about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a a line on that about, um, is it not something along the way? I wish we. I thought we'd all be doing something great at this point, or something. Yeah. Yes. Ex- yes. Well remembered. Thought we'd be doing something great by now. Is that the lyric? Yeah. Yeah. Um, along those lines. Yeah, I think it is. That's the. It's this perception of of what will be, and 
it is like those films that you see in like coming of age movies where like at the end it it seems like great and they all go off and, and have these adventures and you're a little bit shocked when that when that doesn't happen to you and that's not to say that like i don't have a really interest in life and get to tour and stuff and i'm in a band and that's mad and it's really fun you get home and you're a bit like oh this is this is weird like i don't know how to feel now uh, and i think everyone has that in some respect in in what they do yeah i mean the thing is when you're on stage and you're that high and you're getting such a rush when you come home what would feel normal to most people suddenly feels a lot lower because you have this kind of different perspective on it where you've been a lot higher than and you've got a different kind of feeling than most people would get in their lives yeah and i think that's why a lot of musicians and uh, and maybe it's like celebrities like get quite depressed and like feel guilt at what like how, why am I not like absolutely loving my life because I've you know I get to play in front of ten thousand people or get to play this festival Reading and Leeds festival or Glastonbury and you come home and you're still not there's like a, something missing still and it is I do think it is that huge like smack of dopamine or whatever it is you get serotonin when you're on stage and then you come off and often people combat the down with you know booze or whatever um we've got we've become quite good at it over the years of learning how to manage it and i'm certainly better at it than i was when we first started because we just get like drunk every night after the show and then you know a month into tour you'd all be like killing each other you know having punch-ups and like want to quit the band and like being like i'm never doing this again tour and rubbish and then once you once you go back home and you sort of level back out you're like oh okay no i was just like it was a month-long hangover and we were all tired and like we were just sick of being in a van with each other for eight hours a day. So you just learn to manage it now. Now we just sort of make sure we speak to each other less. <laughs> <laughs> what, uh, yeah, what sort of kind of things have you put in place that make it easier to manage? What sort of kind of maybe rituals? Is there anything that you've kind of put in place that helps with it? Um, well, I mean, I definitely drink a lot, a lot less alcohol than I did. That helps massively. I think just like we we're all pretty open now. We talk to each other about everything as a band. If there's if we've got a problem with something, then we just sort of speak our minds quite quickly about it, which is healthy. I think. I don't know. I just just growing up and like trying to be mature and like trying to be mindful and like when I'm at home, I exercise loads, eat healthy if I can. You know, I've got a really good like I've got a kid, which makes me happy. I've got my wife, who makes me happy. So I feel extremely lucky and a kind of. I think everyone's learning how to practice those mindful, mindful things now and all those headspace apps and things help with affirming that your life is, is good. It sounds like you've got quite a lot of stability at home, you know, when the road can be quite an uneven place. You said it, that's a much more <laughs> precise way of saying it than I can. And my, uh, my language has deteriorated over two years, so I can't really <laughs> articulate anything anymore. <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, I've seen interviews with our monkeys too where they kind of speak on the same thing about you know putting those things in place and making sure that you're uh, checking in with each other to kind of maintain that that strong relationship within the band would you ever have conversations like this with other groups about this sort of thing yeah i mean i've spoke to i've spoke to different bands about it over time with with us being like almost an older band now in, in our you know it's gone so quickly like these four albums um and now i'm writing with other artists sort of and we do have those conversations about how to deal with some of the artists I work with are like 18 years old and going off on tour and drinking as much booze as you want. And, you know, there's sort of the trappings that come with tour and this illusion that everyone loves you all of a sudden because you've got 
followers on Instagram and thousands of people clapping for you. But it's kind of, you need a bit of a mental structure. Otherwise, when you come off stage, you'll just sort of fall apart a little bit. So I definitely, I've definitely spoken to certain artists about it if they if they're sort of talking about I don't like walking and go, hey man, let me tell you about life. Uh, I sort of, if someone's asking me a question about it, I'm happy to give any sort of advice I can, whether it's good advice, I don't know. I certainly have more experience than some people now, so I suppose that gives me a little bit of knowledge on, on how to look after yourself a bit better. You mentioned earlier on that, you know, you can be quite unsatisfied musically, like what you were saying, and how that can kind of drive you forward. Was that something the version of you had all the way back in 2006 when you were at that Art of Monkey show? Were you always driven in that way from a young age? Um, for, I think I'm, I'm really obsessed with making music. So, I, and I don't know whether that's rooted in like not quite writing the, the song that I want to write or something like, um, I would say my unsatisfaction more comes from now, like writing a song which I think's amazing, and then you release it, and then it doesn't quite do what you'd hoped. That's where my probably unsatisfaction comes from musically now. Um, and then you put some songs out and they do better than the song that you thought was amazing. And you're like, how has this happened? I don't get it. And part of like, I sort, I suppose, being more mature and doing this for longer is not trying to understand why that happens. You'll never know necessarily why a song does better than other songs i mean i remember on our first record that we did i used to send a bunch of songs back and forth to my a&r man at the time and there's like songs like fossils that we did stuck in my teeth and then t-shirt weather which was just in amongst these songs i was sending back and forward and he like rang me straight away and was like this is amazing we need to record and release this and i was a bit like what is the same as all the other ones i've been sending it's what it's just another song why are you so excited and then we released it and it it's become our biggest song and I didn't realise at all at the time. I just thought it was similar to all the other tunes. So I, I, I've started to realise that I have no idea about my own music. Um, and I have no idea how people are going to respond to it. I just have to trust that the process will work eventually. If you keep putting music out, it, you know, people will connect with certain ones. And, and, that's, and that's good. As long as I like the songs I'm releasing, then I may as well just keep putting stuff out. That's also what maybe gives that song its kind of youthful energy, though. You know, that carefreeness about it. Yeah. The fact that you weren't aware of it and you were kind of just going with the flow and continuing to write. Yeah, well, see, this is the problem, isn't it? Because when you really want something, it's not carefree anymore, is it? It becomes, it becomes sort of considered and, you know, and the kids know that. They can hear it. But the subject matter changes with that. You know, you've touched upon deeper topics. You know, that album's very carefree, the first one. But then since then, with each record, you've kind of gone into deeper things. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I've try I try to keep... I do enjoy writing sort of upbeat, up-tempo, upbeat music. But then, definitely, I mean, there's a track called Sad Happy on the album, Sad Happy, which feels like an up-tempo song, but is ultimately about um, dissatisfaction with, with how things are going and stuff. And even T-shirt weather's like, you know... It's about how you, you think in, in your head, like all summers used to be these beautiful, summery, amazing, grass is green things. And in reality, we don't have that many hot summers in England. It's not, it's not usually t-shirt. We got a handful of days. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, it's the idea like rose tinted glasses sort of thing. Um, so I've always enjoyed songs where they feel upbeat, but actually lyrically, they're a little bit miserable, which I think like um, MGMT and stuff do really well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you have that line on Stuck in My Teeth too. It's like literally too young with not enough time. Yeah. But you were always seemed very aware of the way that you were going to look back on this moment in years to come. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of that first record, the lyrics were just written. I mean, I didn't, I really didn't think about lyrics at all until, you know, a couple of albums ago. So they were very, like, sort of just written, demoed, and then I didn't think about them. And it's only looking back on them that they start, they're starting to make a little bit of sense now. Uh, but then sometimes they're not making any sense at all, to be honest. <laughs> Those are maybe the ones that you wrote just to fill in the melody. Like what we were oh, yeah. At the beginning of this chat. Do you like the. There's a song called Young Chases on, on Young Chases, where the, fir- where the opening lyric is uh, not much as such, not much of a problem. And that doesn't make it, that doesn't make, that makes absolutely no sense. And to this day. It sounds good in the moment, though. It sounds good. It sounds good with the melody, and people love to sing it, and that sometimes that's all that matters. Yeah. 